Before we get into this episode, if you enjoy the Cricket Mentoring Podcast, I'd love it if you could please take 60 seconds to leave a review, as it helps us get heard by more people. G'day legends and welcome back to the Cricket Mentoring Show. I'm very excited today as we have a new piece of equipment each in front of us, better microphones, better audio, so hopefully for you guys listening on the podcast, it'll sound a little bit better in your ears. And as always, I have Reedy with me. How are you, Reedy? Very good, thanks, mate. It's uh, nice for us to finally be stepping up in the world and getting some proper stuff sorted out, proper mics, so um, hopefully I don't sound too mundane in this episode like yep. the last one. Yep, well, uh, we're borrowing these, giving them a little trial today, and then we might invest in better equipment in the future. But, Reedy, before we get into the show, tell us all about what happened in the Fanning versus Reed showdown. In our last episode, we had Fanners, Sam Fanning, a Western Australian contracted player on, and you guys, it was a Friday, you are about to have day one of a two-day match the next day. It obviously then concluded over the weekend, so give us all a bit of a rundown on the game. Um. Yeah, well, it was a tight game. Um, Fanners, Fanners was expecting big things from my office. I didn't even bowl office, so that was a good start from him. Um, uh, we we had to take seven wickets for about 100 runs, um, so we knew the first session was pretty big. Um, Go back a step. What happened in the first week? Give us all a bit yeah, of insight. Yeah, well, well, I got Fanners out <laughs> after he said uh, he'd fill his boots facing my little med, so um, taste it, Fanners. And um, yeah, it's good to have one up on him now. I can I can hold that against him. And so, ha- who batted first? What were the scores? Give we us. We some- got rolled for one fifty-seven um, in the first week, and then we took three for about fifty after that. So the game was well and truly in the balance on a decent wicket. But if we bowled well, we knew we could we could get the job done, which we did. We started day two really well. Um, Big Bryce Jackson stepped up for us, the rookie contracted player for WA. Um, his energy and grit, yeah, really dug in for us, bowled a serious spell first up and then um, I held up the other end with my little meds and managed to get, sneak a few cheap ones and a couple of caught in the ring and caught and bowled, I think, like that because they were trying to hit me for six. So, um, no, it, it all worked out for well, well for us in the end. Yeah, nice work. Melville winners against Perth. Now, there's been plenty of cricket going on around the world. As always, we had the Big Bash final over the weekend. The West Indies versus England T20 series concluded overnight. We had the Women's Ashes is going on, an awesome test match. And then, of course, the Under-19 World Cup is reaching the pointy end. It's reaching the semifinals. What have you been watching, Reedy? Um, well, the, the Big Bash final was something else, wasn't it? I think um, I saw... The first four wickets fall when I thought it's just on a pretty tricky wicket, a slow turning wicket, I think it was. And um, I think, yeah, lost a bit of hope there for the, the Scorchies. But um, no, they that partnership between Evans and Turner was just incredible, really, and something we'll talk more about. And then, yeah, um, staying up to watch Teague bat the other night was very special. Um, the kid just loves it. And I think... It just finds a way. That's all that really matters, isn't it? Finding a way. Absolutely. Well, yeah, we'll talk about him more. But I'm going to start with the West Indies versus England T20 International Series. And what a series it's been. It was two all going into the final match. Obviously, England are a fantastic white ball side, a T20 side stacked with superstars. But the West Indies are, are coming good again. And I'm going to be talking about that in a minute. But Jason Holder last night 
Four wickets in four balls to win the match, to win the series. It's a pretty special effort, that. Cameron Boyce did that recently in the Big Bash. Um, four wickets in four balls, which was the first time that's ever happened in the Big Bash. I'm not sure it's happened too many times in T20 international cricket. So the big Jason Holder doing pretty special things over there in the West Indies. And well done to the West Indies winning the series 3-2. A really um, hotly contested and, yeah, up and down series. Um the women's ashes yesterday, the test match, and again, we'll talk about this a bit more um, a little bit later, but it was fascinating cricket. Did you manage to watch much of that yesterday? I managed to catch all the highlights of the the last day. I unfortunately couldn't watch live, but um, isn't it amazing what the game of test cricket can bring? I think um, the ebbs and flows over the, the course of the day looked, yeah, incredible really, and um, it was a good, good declaration and... Um, I think the right result was had in the end, a draw. Um, some people might think differently with uh, wanting the extra the extra fifth day to, to get the result, but um, the fourth day managed to bring a, a game like that and a nice tight finish. Yeah, well, I, as you mentioned, I think the, the declaration by the Aussies was um, made the match really, really exciting. And then the way England went about it, obviously they needed their behind in the series and they needed to sort of try and get the win um, now that there's a draw, I think they've got to win uh, two or three of the last three ODIs. So they're, they're in the Aussies are in the box seat. But yeah, the way the English went about their run chase, and they were in the box seat for a long, long time. But the two young Aussie girls, Alana King, who was a mentor for us here at Cricket Mentoring in the winter, and um, uh, I've forgotten her name. Annabelle right? Sutherland. Annabelle was Sutherland <laughs> was on the tip of my tongue. Those two under pressure. Bowled absolutely beautifully with Elise Perry in the, sort of at mid-on, mid-off, talking them through it and helping them through it. They, um, they're they the future of Australian women's cricket. And as you say, test cricket, I just don't know why. And we're going to talk a bit more about that in a minute. I don't know why they don't play more test cricket. It was awesome. It was as good a test viewing as you'll watch those last couple of hours last night. It was such... I, I, I was sort of doing some jobs around the house and I sort of had it on the TV in the background. Then I put it on my phone while I was in the kitchen. And I, by the end of it, I was just sitting still watching every ball. I was absolutely glued to the, t- to the screen. I was getting my daughter to come and watch and trying to get her sort of involved and enjoying it. She wasn't that interested. She's only three years old, but I'll be forcing her to watch some more cricket as she gets a bit older. But it really was a great, great product and it was high-quality cricket. Some of the outfield catching, especially by Beth Mooney, was high class, under pressure. Um, and for me, it just, it's, and I'm going to talk about this again in a minute, but it, they've, they've just got to play more test cricket. And it's, it's such an exciting product. You beat me, beat me to it there. I was going to mention Beth Mooney, um, broken jaw, diving forward at cricket balls on the boundary line. Like it doesn't get much tougher than that. And um, that's what it means to these girls to be playing for their country, I think. Um, they just, you see the emotion every wicket um yeah it was incredible yeah well we'll talk more about that in a minute because that's definitely featuring throughout this show but what have you noticed Reedy? um well as i mentioned watching big t get it done against pakistan um it just proves once again that if you can't sweep you're probably going to struggle at the top level um i think that's just so clear these days especially t20 cricket the spinners are really good. Pakistan had like three like really handy spinners and it was turning. But Teague, Teague's ability to just put that aside and commit to his options, his best options, which he's been working on massively, um, I think that 
and then like to watch a few other players sort of struggle to rotate the strike and get the get that good spin bowling away. Um, yeah, I think it was another good example of why sweeping is just a must. And and we saw it in the Big Bash final as well. Laurie Evans and uh, Ash Turner under pressure. Sweeping was one of their go-to options and it was a way to put the pressure back on Nathan Lyon, the GOAT, and Steve O'Keefe, two fantastic bowlers. But Evans and Turner used their sweep shot really, really effectively. So I couldn't agree more with what you've said there. And for me, what I've noticed is the West Indies, when they get their full star-studded group together, they're as good as anyone in white ball cricket. I think they've still got a long way, a bit of a way to go to catch up in red ball cricket. But when they've got... Guys like Kieran Pollard and Jason Holder and those sort of guys on the field, they can they can do some serious serious damage, and I I hope that their success in this series um, kickstarts or continues to kickstarts a resurgent a resurgence of cricket in the West Indies because when the West Indies are a, are a good strong side like they were in the eighties and nineties with Lara and Ambrose and Walsh. I think it's, it can only be a good thing for world cricket. And I, and I, I follow um, their junior side a bit. I know I've had a, done a little bit of work with Akeem August, who's the captain of the West Indies under-19s team, um, who were at the way, way at the World Cup. And I, there's some fantastic young players in that squad. So I really hope that this West Indies group, um, who have just beaten England in this T20 series, they can continue to inspire the next generation of West Indian cricketers. No, the game needs it, doesn't it? Um... The game needs more competitive matches all around the world. And I think, um, yeah, I wouldn't want to let go of a white cricket ball to any of those blokes because, yeah, it'll get sent. <laughs> yeah, and it could come back hard it at It could you. come back at you, yeah. Dangerous game. Now, what have you enjoyed, Reedy? Um, I'm going to get real specific here. The the Laurie Evans lofted cover drive, I think, in the T20 final. Um, Sexy. Uh, it was just something else. Uh I even had I gave it the old retweet and all sorts. Um, for him to hold his shape, I think it was a slightly slower off-pace ball. For him to hold his shape through the ball and um, lift it over cover, it's, I think it was one of the prettiest shots I've ever seen. Um, and to go with that that partnership between Turner and Evans, I think they they just showed so much courage under all that pressure of losing the first four wickets cheaply. So much courage to play their game to to back their options um, and to not go into their shell. I think Ashton Turner um, lap swept his first ball, um, which it, straight away puts the bowler on the back foot. And I think to, I think his tempo there early on really changed the momentum. I think early on there was a lot of trying to go boundary, boundary options quite a bit. Um, but AT's tempo there was brilliant and, and started to be nice and busy and, and turn the game in their favour. Well, AT, one of his greatest attributes, in my opinion, is not only... Well, two two of his greatest attributes. One is how calm he is and level. And uh, Ashton Agar said afterwards that he thinks he's got um, higher honours in the leadership space ahead of him and hopes that he'll get an opportunity to captain Australia one day. But AT's always been an incredibly calm sort of guy who the big moments don't seem to phase him. But the other attribute that probably isn't talked about enough is how fast he is between the wickets. And he often just can knock it. Well, a lot of the good players do it. They take pace off the ball and they knock it into the leg side when there's three out on the boundary when they get a sneaker too. But AT just does that with ease at times. And I think a feature of the um, that innings was not just the big shots, um, but also the running between the wickets. AT and Laurie Evans, even Laurie with a broken toe, 
um, their communication, their commitment to their sort of their running, their trust they had in their partner, which is a big thing that junior cricketers don't sort of have. They don't trust their partner, so there's always an element of doubt. I think when you get to that level, you you have to sort of you have to trust your partner, and you know that they they are able to judge a run well most of the time. So the trust they put in each other was was um, amazing, and yeah, what a, what an innings um, that was by those two four for not many, and and Laurie's um, lofted cover drive. I think Gilly called it the the shot of the the shot of the tournament. Um, we show a lot of footage of hitting. Um, to our players and we, we sort of teach that sort of method in our power hitting online course and that is how you want to hit that is a serious series that was a serious serious shot that I'm sure will be replayed and reshowed for for many many years um, and for me um, I, I'm also thrilled for our mate Vogzy um, Adam Vogus a former teammate of ours uh, we go to the gym with him most weeks when he's in Perth and yeah, he, he was under a bit of pressure at the start of last se- season. I think the Scorchers lost their first four games last season when they were on the road. There was a fair bit of pressure. There was a bit of noise around him potentially losing his job at the, with the Scorchers or them splitting the roles between the wa- Warriors and the Scorchers. And for him, sort of just over 12 months later, to be um, the, ch- the tournament, the championship winning coach, um, couldn't be more happy for Vogsy. Um, I sort of once flipped was ruled out of the semi-final and final, then my allegiances were um, purely with the Scorchers. I'm very lucky to have Greg Shippard as a a mentor and he's the coach of the Sixers. So I was always wanting Shippy to do well, but um, having having won the last two tournaments, it was a nice sort of for the Scorchers to get it done. But for me, sorry, that was a bit of a long one there to follow up what you enjoyed. But for me, what I've enjoyed is the women's Ashes test. Yes, I've already spoken about it, but... England was set 257 to win, and they gave it a serious nudge. They were two, three for, two for 160 at one stage, um, two for 166 just before Heather Knight got out. Um, they were absolutely cruising. I think they lost something like six or seven for 20-odd in the space of 30-odd balls, but they never really gave up the chase until they were nine out. Even Charlie Dean, who was caught um, top-edging a sweep shot off Alana King, she was still going for it when they were eight out. Um, and, and the, the, the cricket, as I've already said, was high quality. It was really, really high quality. It was exciting. And you could see that the cat and mouse between Australia dangled the carrot with the run chase. They, needed, they had 45 overs. They needed just over five and over um, from the get-go. And the way they started before the, the tea break um, with Beaumont and Winfield Hill, they were none down for 30-odd at tea. And then Knight went at almost run a ball strike rate of 88. Siva went at 93. And then Sophia Dunkley struck at 140 with five fours and two sixes. So they put the Aussies on the back foot. The Aussies were reeling for a while there, and they probably were regretting their um, their decision. But in the big moments, it's all about how you handle those big moments. How And it doesn't matter what happens up until a certain point. You have to get the job done. And unfortunately for England, they didn't quite go deep enough. They didn't quite have those batters still in at the end. They lost Knight. They lost Siva. They lost Dunkley. And then it was down to the middle and lower order to try and get on with it with not much um, time left. And unfortunately, Jones was out for four off seven, Brunt four off six, Shrubs off six off six, Dean three off five. It's ha- always harder to start um, than it is for a, a, an established player to go on with it. So, But it was proper cricket. And I, yeah, I'd love to have seen more test cricket. I liked the bravery of bowling Alana King at the end. I think, I, I think at one stage I saw they needed roughly 30 odd off the five overs and to bring on your leg spinner um i think is 
was great captaincy because they've got to hit, they've got to make the pace of the ball, and then it brings your boundary riders in, and also for Alana to then execute. I think she had a nice plan going around the wicket, make him hit different spots. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, so yeah, and there was a couple of overs there where they were Siva and Dunkley were cruising. They were, they needed less than a runner ball. They were absolutely doing it easy, and then Sutherland bowled a really. I think it was Sutherland bowled the first over. They got one off it. Um, bowling primarily to, um, I think it was to Siva, Siva and Nat Siva, and um, bowling short balls and bowling good line and length and just mixing it up. And, and they got one off the over. Then Kingy bowled her next over and they only got one off that over as well. And that really swung the momentum. And, and Kingy's um, ability to handle the big moment in her first test match um, was crucial. And, and those two young ladies, which we've already mentioned, Sutherland and King, were, were phenomenal. And full credit to um, Lanning and Perry, the leaders in that group, um, for giving, backing them and giving them su- the support they needed. But it was highly, highly enthralling cricket. And for me, that leads into what I haven't enjoyed. And I just am really disappointed that there's not more women's test cricket. I, it, I don't think that the professional women and even the gra- at, at district level, I don't think they play enough cricket, in my opinion. But one test match isn't enough. Catherine Brunt, who's 36 years old, she's played 14 test matches in her career. She's been playing for England for 17 years, and that's less than one test a year. I think that right now, there's probably no, there's probably no money to be made for the, for the um, broadcasters and for the governing bodies, but if you build it, they will come. And I think that if you put um, test cricket in front of enough eyeballs and you play enough test cricket with the strongest, strong, stronger nations, Australia, India, England, New Zealand, South Africa, whoever, well, then there's going to be, there, there will be eyeballs. There will be people that will tune in and want to watch that because yesterday's cricket was so, so exciting. And I just really wish there was a, a second and a third test because I'm sure it would have been just as fascinating. Yeah, I think it's time to rack either the T20s or the one days um, out of the women's ashes because we see so much white ball cricket. And maybe an idea, go to a three-test three, three test series as well to add, add on to it. Or, or the, the Ashes gets decided by test cricket. And I think that's how it should be. Um, it's the purest form of the game. I think well, I don't see a reason why they couldn't do the same sort of thing. Um, and then for me, like that, that leads into what I haven't enjoyed. I'm going to double down on this. And it's 2022 and the women's test wasn't on free-to-air television. I think that is just unbelievable. Um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I think we, we need more eyes on these sort of games and um, that's the only way it's going to grow and people need to invest in women's cricket a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've got some fantastic young female cricketers in our system and we really hope that they have the opportunity to play. If, if they're good enough, they have the opportunity to play red ball test cricket in the future um, in front of millions of viewers because, as I said, I really want to get my daughter watching cricket and, and it's going to be far more relatable for her to see um, some, some women, some young girls, some, some young ladies on the TV than it is the boys or the men. So hopefully that, that changes um, pretty soon. And well done to Alyssa Healy and a few of the other ladies who were sort of campaigning for it to get onto free-to-air and, and those sort of things because that's what we need. Now, moving into the next phase of today's show, we're going to move into a bit of a little tennis theme here. But what something that I think we can all learn from and we can all get a lot of value out of is Ash Barty's story. Now, Ash Barty is the world number one female tennis player and she won the Australian Open on Saturday night. And she was 
incredible, not just throughout this tournament, but she's been the best tennis player in the world for the last few years. And I have really um, resonated with her story for some time now. I first came across her story on a podcast I was sent a couple of years ago. It was um, a podcast uh, where a guy called Ben Crow was a guest on SEN with uh, Tim Watson and Gary Lyon. And they were speaking to Ben Crow about what he does and a few of his ideas and and they spoke about Ash Barty. And in that, that um, episode, Ben Crow spoke about how Ash Barty... Um, let, let's rewind it a bit. Ash Barty, going back in 2015, she took time off tennis. She won Junior Wimbledon prior to that. She, was, she had all these expectations on her as a tennis player. And with expectation, um, often comes pressure. Often people can stop enjoying it. She fell out of love with tele- tennis. She stopped playing. And she actually went, this is how good of an athlete she is, she went and played in the WBBL. She played a year of professional cricket or a season of professional cricket for the Brisbane Heat. I think she's also a pretty handy golfer. I think she's off two or three in, in golf. And she's a, obviously a phenomenal sportswoman. Um, but she had a year or so off tennis. And this is about the time she met Ben Crow. And Ben Crow spent some time with her. I think he said in this podcast he flew and, and spent about a week with her. And during that time, they, they discussed who she is as a person and what does she value as a person? What, is, what makes her as a person? And she came up with this list of what she likes and what makes her her. Things like she enjoys um, going to the footy. She's a big Richmond football club fan. She enjoys coffee. She enjoys being an auntie and spending time with her niece and nephew. And she came up with this, this long list of, of things that make her her. And the whole part of the process was trying to get her to not identify herself as just Ashbardi, the tennis player, but Ashbardi, the lady who plays tennis, but also likes being an auntie, going to the footy. And with this um, exercise that Ash went through with her mindset coach, um, Ben Crow, she just... she she's, she started to enjoy her tennis again. She started, she got back into tennis. She started to enjoy it again. And she started to take the pressure off herself and off her performances. And she started to focus on enjoying tennis and enjoying the fact that she's just playing tennis. And if she loses, it doesn't mean she's a less valuable person or a less valuable human. And that message is something I've now shared. I've shared that podcast with a number of our athletes. It's something that we teach our athletes at our camps when we get a chance to have a few athletes in the same room. We talk about the identity piece that you're, you young people, you young cricketers, you young athletes, you, you, are, you love cricket, but you're not just a cricketer. You are someone who plays cricket, but you're also a son. You're also a daughter. You're also a brother, a sister. You also love your, your, your Xbox. You also love your mates. You love fishing. You love going out on a boat. Whatever it is, cricket and for Ash, tennis is only a part of what makes us a human being. And when Ash sort of really bought into that, and she also talks a lot about becoming vulnerable and being open um, to her feelings and to her emotions and and saying if she's struggling or or really trying to be open to all the emotions, um, that is when she started becoming the tennis player she was always capable of being. Winning Junior Wimbledon, she obviously was a highly skilled athlete at a young age, but now she's sort of living that potential that she's always had because she's approaching her tennis in the right way. And for me, the way she's gone about this Australian Open where she hasn't lost a set, she's lost the minute, the least amount of matches, or oh, least amount of games um, in a tournament ever or in, in a very long time. I saw a, an Instagram post about. 
And yeah, I think that there's so much that all of us, all of our listeners and viewers um, can take from Ash Barty's journey. Yeah, absolutely. It's an incredible story. Um, I think what I noticed watching her matches is how emotionally level she stays, um, whether she's down, whether she's shanked one. Um, no matter what's going on, she might be in front by miles, but she just stays level, stays on the job because the game's in perspective now. And um, I th- you see that amongst the, the better athletes all around the world. I think in tennis, you see it quite often. People can't control their emotions and then they, they throw away matches purely just from losing, losing the plot, I guess. Um, and I think you, see, you could see um, how good a space she was in. I think there was footage of her in the hallways of Rod Laver Arena playing cricket with her um, little entourage. So like that just shows what sort of space she's in and um, yeah, it's not the end of the world anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And it, yeah, it's about enjoyment. It's about really trying to enjoy the little moments as well as the big moments. And there was a commentator, um, I might have been Todd Woodbridge or someone that said, like playing in the final in front of her home crowd, they, they don't see that bothering her because of the headspace she's in and how focused she is on her process, how sort of driven she is by just showing up and trying to be present and trying to win each point, win each moment. And if it's meant to be, and if she, that means that she's done it well enough to then get the result of winning the tournament, well, then so be it. And absolutely it was good enough, but she was not focusing on the outcome. She was not focusing on oh, I'm going to be the first woman in 40-odd in years or the first Australian in 40-odd years to win the Australian Open. She was focusing on what do I need to do in this moment? What do I need to do right now to win this point, to bring my best to this moment? And as you just said, you referred to the best athletes of it being very level. That's what the best athletes do. They're very level. They don't ride the roller coaster. They don't get really up when they're playing well. They don't get really down when they're not playing so well. They just try and bring their best to each moment. And if it's good enough, great. If it's not, they, t- they take a moment or so to reflect and learn and try and bank that information so that they can be better in the future. And then they move on to the next moment because that becomes the most important thing. And you could see that in the way she was going about it. She was enjoying it, but she was laser focused. She was really, really present. And that's where for all of us, any athlete, any human being, that's where our best lives is in the present moment. Oh, there's just no doubting that. And I think, we see that we see it daily, don't we? In our one-on-one sessions, people make a mistake and well, they don't hit one perfectly, and then it's it they carry it for the rest of the session with them, and then that affects their performance. And um, I just can't, we just can't stress enough how important this story is and what you can learn from it. Um, yeah, it's incredible, really, like the turnaround. Yeah, I've seen so many good cricketers. Um, who have their session ruined and then they end up having a, a bad few sessions, maybe a week or a couple of weeks or even a month on the back of a couple of mishits or a couple of shanks. And often they're on tricky turf wickets at, at club training or you're challenging their skill set in the, in the nets in the bowl, with the bowl machine or the sidearm and you're going to make mistakes. So I think you've just got to, got to really understand that that is part of the process and the better athletes, they learn to accept them and move on very quickly. And I think it goes back in some ways to the identity piece where they're not valuing themselves as a person based on the outcome. They're not saying, oh, I mishit it. I, I, I'm a bad cricketer. That means I'm a bad person. And that's what a lot of kids do. A lot of kids do value themselves as a person based on how well their cricket's going. And their cricket is all determined by the last ball. 
oh, I didn't hit it well, I'm no good. Rather than saying, yeah, I know I'm a pretty good player. I know I've got this. I'm going to make some mistakes along the way, but I know I'm trying to do my best and I'm getting better. And yeah, I accept that when the mistakes come, I'll just, yep, okay, I'm going to learn from it, move on and not be so critical and so judgmental. Something that we talk a lot about to our athletes is in the moment of, of practicing and even in games, you want to try and be curious. So you're always learning, you're always understanding what's going on, not judgmental. Most people go, oh, that was good, I'm happy, or that was bad, or I'm angry, rather than going, oh, why did that work? Why didn't that work? And if you can get to that headspace, that's where I think the best players live. They, they're really curious, they're not judging themselves, and they move on to the next moment really quickly. Yeah, I, I think it's, that's a brilliant lesson. Um, I'm gonna, I think that's going to take us into our next segment here, and we're going to stick to a tennis theme for now. Um, Rafael Nadal, he... Came back from two sets to love down. The man was dripping. Um, the match went for five and a half hours last night. I don't know if you saw any, but it was one of the most grueling sporting events I've ever witnessed. And um, it was it, like every ma- every game was going to juice three, juice four. Like they kept breaking each other. Break or well, there would be three rag points a, a game would get saved or something just just outrageous. Every game was battled hard and. Um, I think, well, like we just spoke about, Rafael Nadal was able to stay level. That th- when he was two sets down, he stayed level. He he, he didn't throw the toys out of the cot, um, and he just gradually started to work his way back. And you could see Medvedev was starting to slowly lose it with the umpires, the the ball kids. Um, yeah. And so that was Nadal focusing on his process, not the outcome. He was focusing on what do I need to do to win this moment? I have to win this moment, the next moment, the next moment to get back into the set, not the outcome. And maybe Medvedev was starting to think about the, the winning the tournament and getting ahead of himself. Yeah, it was it was pretty clear to see um, from either, on either side of the net what was going on. And Nadal is so particular with what his process, his um, routines, his has to have his water bottles facing the right way and not step on any lines and all this sort of stuff. But yeah, for for this reason, the man's known as the raging bull. Um, he's, he's a grinder no matter what the situation is. And for that reason, I'm gonna I'm crossing sporting codes here, but he's gonna get cap number six of the Grinders Club, and I'm bloody excited to have him in our top top six. Welcome, Rafa. <laughs> yeah, cheers, Rafa. Um, I wonder if he's ever seen a cricket ball, but um, you just know you'd want him out there opening the batting on a tough deck, like yeah. taking the shine off. He'd cop body blows. Um, yeah, that's just someone you want in your, any side really, isn't it? Yeah, well, I reckon last night's five-hour, 24-minute marathon was probably like Tubby Taylor's triple 100 in Pakistan. Where yeah, exactly. Batted right. for two days and... Yeah, you just or Dean Jones being in India where he was on a drip the night sort of the, the night before his double hundred and yeah that that's a mammoth mammoth effort. I I didn't get to watch much last night, but I was following it and I sort of went to bed when it was two sets to one. Um, and then I yeah I thought come on Rafa, I was really hoping Rafa would get it done. But to, to, I woke up the first thing I did this morning was check check um the internet check the scores and. What a huge effort, and he is a very well um, deserving um, entrant to your Grinders Club. No, oh, it's a pleasure. It, could he be skipper? No, nah, maybe not skipper. Nah, but no, uh, he's uh, yeah, he's an absolute freak athlete. I can't believe their fitness levels. So cap number six. Yep. Who, who have we got so far? Who are the who are the nah, members? We've got so we, Dro- Dean Elgo is the first. Yep. Invitee. Yep. Raul Dravid. 
last last episode. Um, then we had, well, I think we unofficially announced Chris Rogers as the CEO of the the club. Yeah. Um, and then we had myself purely because I can't hit it off the square. And then young Teague Wiley just loves grinding and getting red ink and um, winning winning games for his side no matter what. So that's a good top six. Quite a few opening batters in there. So you'll have to fill around. Rafa might just slide in at number six and <laughs> get it done. Now, we spoke, Reedy says, spoke earlier about the sweep shot. And today's question um, refers back to that. It's something that we've um, shared a bit on our socials about because um, it's a process Teague's been through over the last few years and it's been pretty well documented about our trip to India and how much of an impact that had for Teague um, and how he is now playing spin quite well over in the West Indies. There's always room for improvement. He's certainly not a, a master of it yet, but he's using his sweep shot really, really effectively. And today's question is, what are your thought processes when sweeping? Did you sweep off the stumps or wait for one going down leg or outside off? And what about sweeping against the spin? What are your thoughts on this, Reedy? No, yeah, I, I found it so interesting watching him go about this um, the other night. And uh, I firstly think you've, you've just got to make the conscious decision that you're going to, you're going to start sweeping. And I think if, like, you, you need to make the effort and put in the time to sweep in, in training. I think um, you can't just go out willy-nilly and decide, oh, shit, like he's all over me here. I might swipe across one and hope for the best. I think Teague had a method where he was just that was his, he was committing to it no matter what. And um, I find, I personally have, like I've struggled with spin and um, I've found that this season I've literally all, I've been doing some underarm drills with sweeping and just doing it putting doing ten or twenty in a warm up before a game and it, you just feel so much more confident with it. Um, in terms of whether it's spinning in or spinning out, I think that's that's the personal preference, really. Like, I think you need to understand yourself there, and if you're not not comfortable doing it on the stumps, so you might have a better option to hit straight when it's on the stumps. Um, but I think I'm more sweeping when it's off the stumps. I like sweeping when it's outside off, or going with it down leg um, personally as a left hander. Um, but yeah, I think because he was committing to it fully um, and showing the courage to do it, I think that held him in good stead, even if it was turning um, away. Yep. Well, I think you made a few very good points there. And the first, of, um, which we can't stress enough, is you have to practice it regularly. It's, I, swear, I probably learned to play the sweep shot when I was about 20 or so when I spent a bit of time at Middlesex and I asked one of the boys who was a really good sweeper, Tom Smith, to help me with the fundamentals. And so I went away and I worked really hard at those fundamentals. And then I remember a, a grade season being back in Perth and, and saying to the coach, I want to develop my sweep shot. I want to work on my sweep shot. And I went into a spin net We had, and I said to the bowlers, I'm going to try and sweep every single ball. And I remember that the first net session, I probably hit one in four. And the others were hitting me in the arm, the helmet, missing them, getting bowled, whatever. But I was okay with that because I was willing to make mistakes to get better. And I was... I was communicating what I was trying to do. The next session, I might have hit two in four. And I did that for a few weeks. And all of a sudden, just understanding which balls I could and couldn't could and couldn't sweep I, I made a big difference. And I had the trust and the confidence as well as in the background working on my fundamentals. And so for the past sort of 10, 12 years of my career, a sweep shot was a big part of it. And I had, I had a lot of success. First off, slog sweeping spinners. And then in the, in the back half of my career, hard sweeping and lap sweeping spinners and um 
for me, I would. It's all about risk. It's all about do you need to take that risk in red ball cricket? Often, like if Teague's playing red ball cricket, he's not sweeping very often. He would unless he really needs to break the shackles or put the bowler off. But he's playing with a um, a vertical bat and trying to just minimise the risk. Um, and I, I, I'm similar. I, I would. I would only sort of go to my sweep, even though it became one of my better shots in the second half of my career. I'd only go to it if I, if I, as a reaction or as a premeditated, I like I need to score in that area. So, um, semi-final, uh, one day semi-final last year against Claremont, I went into bat. Wellsie had just hit one to mid on. We were two for fifty, maybe. I went into bat, and there was an off spinner bowling around the wicket. Um, and he just drifted one onto leg stump. And so I just naturally swept with the spin behind square for four. And then the next boy drifted onto the leg stump again. Same sort of thing. So I was eight off three balls. They moved their field around. And then I thought to myself, if he floats it up outside, I'm going to slog sweep him over mid-wicket because there's no one there. There's a lot of space. And he did exactly what I was wanting, that ball. So I picked the ball. I think I was on – I hit him for six. I think I was on 14 off four balls from three different sweep shots. And so for me, that was – the first two were more reaction. The, th- the third one was a bit of a, a premeditated plan, but I was only going to do that if the ball was in the right spot. If he bowled that on middle and off, spinning into the stumps, well, then that's when the risk goes up and I probably didn't need to play that shot in that moment. So I think a lot is to do with the risk and which way it's spinning, in my opinion, doesn't matter because you want to be getting it either as it bounces or on the full. But what does matter is the angles. If the left arm is coming round the wicket, left arm ortho is coming round the wicket, bowling wide on the crease, you've got to be mindful of his angle. That's a different angle than a leggy bowling over the wicket. Or a right arm offy bowling over the wicket's different angle to a left arm around the wicket. So you've just got to be mindful of the angles and the trajectory of your sweep shot. Um, but personally, it's about risk. In white ball, T20 cricket, I'm far more likely to premeditate a sweep and then sort of hope that they, they bowl in a certain area. But again, I wouldn't be premeditating against a spinner who misses their line and length regularly because I wouldn't a I wouldn't need to sweep, but b the chances of them bowling the ball where I want it is low, and I could probably just play any other shot. I could cart, pull, whatever. Um, so I, if I'm premeditating a sweep, it's, it's usually against an accurate spinner, and it's usually um, to to just yeah, not only score runs, but make them think about it. Make them either change the field, change their line, change the length, or whatever. But just put a little bit of pressure back on the bowler. Um, so so long sort of um, answer there for me. But a you got to practice it a lot. You want to practice all your options and work out what you're good at. Something that Teague has done really really well this this um, series is he's got across his stumps. He's got his front foot going out towards the offside, and he's sweeping the ball from outside off behind square based on what position he's getting his body into because that's where he's most comfortable. That's where he's got the most trust and confidence. What I am I sort of spoke to him after the game the other day and I've encouraged him to do is keep practicing, like you said, keep practicing with his underarms, hitting the ball, lining his leg more up in line with the ball and hitting the ball just in front of square. Because the other day he nailed some sweeps behind square but they'd put a man there after he hit two or three boundaries there. And then he shuffled across his crease. He went to slog sweep a couple and he did sort of roll them square but they weren't exactly where he was trying to go but he got two boundaries for them so if he can start sweeping behind square early they put a man there and then he can start to sweep on square in front of square he's going to be incredibly hard to bowl to but like you said it's a work in progress for him it's something he's not done a whole lot of in his life he started sweeping a little under three years ago when we took that tour to india we spent 10 days at the Karnatic institute of cricket in bangalore and teague probably batted for eight hours a day while we were there and that was something that 
I'd always thought that he could be anything as a player, but just seeing his hunger to bat and his his love of batting while we were there just sort of reaffirmed what I what I'd always thought. But he um he worked so hard at his sweeping. Similar story to me where he made lots of mistakes early and he was willing to make mistakes, willing to look a bit silly against the Indian spinners, but. Then he started to have a bit of progress. He then came back to Perth, and it's something we constantly do. I know he does it with the guys at the Wacker. He's regularly sweeping. I know they try and get him sweeping a lot there. And then whenever he's with me, we do a bit of spin. Sweep, uh, spin. We get our underarm sweeps. I encourage him to, to sort of sweep me if I'm bowling off his in him or whoever's bowling at him. Just practice, practice, practice. And even the month before he went away, he was still making lots of mistakes. But so far in the World Cup, it's been very, very impressive. And the one thing that you said is commitment. He's really committing to it. He's watching it closely and he's got such good hand-eye coordination that even when they fire it in at the stumps and it's behind him a bit, he's still being hitting it and getting runs from it. And yeah, full credit to him for all the work he's put into his sweep shot. I think he even, he even got a bit funky and peppered backward point with a couple of nice reverse sweeps as well. So it's all starting to, he's starting to understand his blueprint against spin and He's got options, which is gonna that is just gonna be the difference for him going forward. Get, um, compared to a lot of other young players, even in that team. Yeah, well, a few of the other young guys haven't got to the sweep shot, and I just imagine they haven't got trust in it. They haven't practiced it. But I can assure anyone watching or listening to this that Teague's put a lot of time and effort into it, and that's why he's able to trust it on those spinning wickets. Now, let's move on to our performances of the week, and we've got a pretty long list here, so we'll run through them rather quickly. We'll start with Teague. Um, 262 runs at 132 in the um, World Cup. He's had four innings, um, 100, 101 not out against Scotland. A few people said, oh, it's only Scotland. Yep, fair enough. So then he's also got runs uh, against Pakistan, who are a pretty highly fancied attack, a pretty high-quality attack. So 71, and unfortunately, he was absolutely filthy when he got out. He walked across his stumps and got bowled behind his legs, trying to just nick a single to the, to the leg side while his partner at the other end was going, going after them. But again, him and Campbell Kellaway um, getting the Aussies off to a great start. And I think that's going to be a huge... So how's this? Um, after six overs in the last game, Australia versus Pakistan, Aussies were none for 30 maybe. And Buck said they've won, that's, that six overs has won them the game. Buck was like, they're going to win the game from this because they got put in. They lost the toss and got put in. And generally, the game started at 9 a.m. over there, and the, the, the white ball has been seaming around and doing a bit. And most sides have been two or three down in the first sort of 10 overs for not many. And Kellaway, especially in that innings, got the Aussies off to a great start. Teague didn't face as many balls. He was nudging them around, but Kellaway played some beautiful shots. Um, so how those two go at the top of the um, order is going to really determine the Aussies' chances against India in the semi-final and if they progress further than that into the final. But Teague is, yeah, he just keeps defying the odds and just keeps getting runs. He's, he's amazing. Um, John Wells, we have to mention Wellsy, second on the most, um, sec, got the second most runs in the BBL this year. Snuck up in the last few games, a few really important innings for the strikers in the last few games. Finished with 501 runs at an average of 38.5 and a strike rate of almost 130. He's now the fourth all-time leading run scorer in the Big Bash. He's a quiet achiever. He's underrated, but boy, is he consistent. Um, so, Wellsy, well done. Now, I'll hand this one over to you, Reedy. Tell us about Connor's Pfeiffer. Yeah, Connor Blacksall Hill for Perth Cricket Club on Saturday, or last Saturday um, against the mighty Melbourne Storm. Um, he, was, he was quality. He bowled five, uh, 21 overs, took five for 39, um, I think, Bowling his off spin, um, it was it was genuinely one of the the best um, spells of spin I've seen in grade cricket. Um, 
the the wicket was assisting a bit. It was a bit tacky, so he was getting s- some unbelievable turn and bounce. But his control with that was exceptional. Um, he's a pretty quiet and humble bloke, old Connor. But uh, we've got to pump his tyres up a bit here. I haven't faced off-spin bowling like that in grade cricket personally. And I think it needs to be discussed more. Yeah, well, um, I switched on when Reedy was, what did you make, 20-odd? First innings? Yeah, I don't know. I threw another one away. Reedy was on 20-odd. I switched on. The live stream wasn't really working. It just started to work. I switched on. And then Connor bowling to Reedy. Connor's one of our mentors and a student of mine. And Connor got one to bounce and bite off the... St- hit Reedy on the stickers and caught. A really good catch, actually, at, at Silly Mid-Off. Um, and you were his first of, of his five, I think. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Who gets caught at Silly Mid-Off in grey cricket? You don't see that every day. So that sort of s- shows what sort of form he was in with the ball, getting it to really... Um, talk yeah and the Perth boys speak very highly of him as a bowler so yeah good things for Connor to come hopefully and running through a few other scores over the last two weeks last round um, Ethan Smith 105 out of 113 balls for Willerton in under 17s probably could have gone and got a massive one but he had to get in the car and drive down to second grade he was not out in both games and he went down to the second grade and got another 30 in the afternoon before being run out Shawnee Bores playing second grade in that same game he was batting with Ethan when he got run out um, first senior hundred for Willerton again, 106 not out of 230 balls. And on that note, little shout out to Liam Hindle who's producing this show today. Um, he got his first grade hundred as well on the weekend. So well done to Liam in a big partnership with Shawnee. And well then, <laughs> and then Corey Sweetman um, playing under 14s for Fremantle Cricket Club the week before, 136 not out of 143 balls. It was a really interesting chat with him after that. He said he wasn't. Didn't had a bit of a sore back, wasn't sure if he was going to play, but he, he got it done that day. And Jack Moraldo, fourth grade for Wanneroo Cricket Club, 141 off 122 balls. Absolutely smoked them um, the week before in a dominant, dominant performance by Wanneroo Cricket Club against Claremont. And Jack Garner-Dart, a young 15-year-old, opened the batting for Claremont and got carried his bat in the first innings. Claremont rolled for 81. Jack got 33 not out, opening the batting and carried his bat. So good effort from young Jack there. Now... Reedy, on to the predictions. And uh, Skulls takes a bit of a lead. I think yeah. it's a bit of a con- bit of controversy in the office here. Um, I believe I should be getting three points for my prediction last game. Reedy's shaking his head and says, it's only worth one. In, in our last podcast, I predicted that the stri- whoever won out of the Strikers and Hurricanes would go on to win the next match against the Thunder. So I got that one right, tick. I also predicted the Scorchers would win the, the tournament and I predicted Darcy Short would get some runs and he got 50-odd. But Reedy's only given me one point, even though I got all three right. Reedy predicted India would bounce back against Africa, so they didn't, and they didn't. So Skulls takes a lead 1-0 in our predictions. So what do you got for us this time, Reedy? Well, firstly, I don't know where I said make three predictions. I said make one prediction. So, But credit to you, I'll, I'll give you the one with the Adelaide Strikers um, getting it done in both games, that's a pretty fair effort to call two results there. Um, this week, we're making one prediction, Skulls, okay? Um, I'm going to go with Australia will be too good in the first women's ODI. I think they're a really strong white ball outfit, as they've shown over the years, and I think we'll, yeah, stamp their authority in this one. Gee, you've really gone out of limb there. <laughs> yeah. uh, I need to get on the board. I a, need to get on the board. That's a really high-risk prediction from you well i'm going to go against the aussie boys in the under 19 world cup this is not what i want to happen obviously i want australia to go all the way and i really hope teague and cooper and the boys keep getting it done but i just think india they're so good at underage level they're so good at any level really but i think india will be a 
touch too strong for Australia. I think it'll be a high-scoring game. From all reports, India's bowling is pretty good, but their batting is exceptional. Um, and in the warm-up match um, before this tournament started, Cooper Connolly scored an amazing 100, but the um, Indians chased 271 down, I think. Um, so Aussies are going to have their work cut out, so I think India will be too strong. I'm going to... That's my prediction already, but I'm just going to throw in a couple of extra little side notes. I think, England go, yep. will, I think England will be too strong for Afghanistan in the other semi-final, so it'll be an in- India-England final with India winning the tournament. So there's my prediction for the Under-19 World Cup. But as I said, I hope I'm wrong, and I hope Teague and the boys get it done. Yeah, I like that. I think you're onto one there as well. Um, India are always strong, aren't they? Yep. No matter where they are. But, um, no, nah, geez. Long episode, good episode again. Yeah, well, hopefully our viewers and listeners got some value. Hopefully the sound quality is a little bit better now. We've got these bad boys. Um, Reedy, it's been a pleasure as always. Some good stuff in there. And hopefully, uh, yeah, we can keep talking a bit of pump and giving some value. So thanks a lot, everyone, for tuning in. Have a great week. um, And go out, get it done, and back yourself. Mm